Welcome, everyone. Are you, are you ready to dig a little deeper tonight? Good. <laughs> We're actually going to be watching more video tonight than we have in the prior two sessions. The first segment that we will be looking at runs for about 15 minutes, but when we get to that, the, the people that have put together the video, I think, do an excellent job, and, and so it's probably the best way to learn the material. Uh, before we begin, though, let's uh, offer a prayer. Father in heaven, we just honor you and glorify you as our creator. Father, we just recognize that you are awesome and wonderful, and you have fearfully and wonderfully made this universe, and you even created this earth as a place for us to dwell, Lord. And Father, we just, just pray that you would help us to see your glory even more clearly tonight and just draw us close to your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Okay, so we're continuing. Um, we had an introduction, and then last week we took a look at something called teleology, which is the appearance of purpose and design that we see in the earth and in the universe. We especially focused on what is unique about the planet earth. Uh, we're going to continue to look at what I'm calling challenges to uh, Darwinian evolution. Uh, we call this worldviews and conflict, so I just want to keep reminding people what we're talking about here. All people have a worldview. It's the way that we perceive the world around us. <clears throat> it's the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world, a collection of beliefs about life and the universe held by an individual or a group. And quite importantly, people naturally interpret evidence in a way that is consistent with their worldview. I brought this chart back in. We looked at it during the first session just as a reminder that we have evidence. So in this picture, you have the planet Earth in the middle, and people are looking at the same set of evidence. But people bring a worldview to the way that they look at and interpret the evidence. Um, very few people are just unbiased that can you know, simply be convinced by the evidence. That uh, you can be challenged by the evidence, but in the case of someone like Charles Darwin, he was a materialist at heart and an atheist at heart. There were times that he confessed to seeing evidence that seemed to contradict his own theory, but he was persistent in his belief of his theory because he was committed to a particular worldview. And so I think many people today believe in Darwinian evolution because from the time that they were young, they were simply told through various venues that it's true. They see it in, in the television shows and the movies. Uh, as they get into the schools, they hear about it, and they simply assume that, you know, we've got authoritative figures that claim that this is true, therefore it must be true. But yet in their heart, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't quite understand it. And a person like that, I think, can look at the evidence differently and come to a different conclusion. And that's really the point of sharing the materials like we're going to look at tonight. Because I think if you simply look at the evidence, you can see that contrary to what some people say, that Darwinism is a, not only a theory, it's a fact. I think you'll see as we examine the evidence that the facts really don't line up quite like they think that they do. And so some of these challenges last week, again, teleology, focusing particularly on the earth. Tonight, we're going to look at two things, irreducible complexity, and that's where we have the video we're going to be examining. 
And then we're going to look at the challenges of abiogenesis, which is the origin of life. Uh, most even evolutionists will admit this is a very weak point in their whole theory. Uh, there's never been brought forward any credible theory of how inorganic materials organize into a living cell. And we'll, we'll take a look at you know, what they have themselves seen as a major challenge. And then we'll come back in the next session and we're going to look at a rapidly expanding area of knowledge today, which is the DNA that we have in our cells. And we'll be looking at a few other things. And some of these we'll look, through, look at fairly quickly. So irreducible complexity. Um, Darwin gave a falsification test for his theory, which is important. Any scientific theory, if you cannot ever disprove it, if you can't ever falsify it, it's not actually a theory. Charles Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Now, when he spoke of organs, I think what he was generally familiar with, there's, there's roughly 79 or 80 organs, major organs in the human body. And during his day, people were very knowledgeable of the fact that humans have a heart and have lungs and we have a brain and kidneys and liver. And people were familiar with, you know, we have the eyes and we have the nose and things like the pancreas and even the gallbladder. These are the kinds of organs that in his day people understood existed. Now, what Charles did not know because they didn't have the technology to support it is when you get down to the cellular level, there are small organs, which means organelle. And so there you have things like the mitochondria and the nucleus, and you have the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus, things that you heard about in school. So there are organs inside the individual cells. And it's actually only in recent years that we've come to understand that if you could go smaller still and all of our cells are filled with molecular machines, little robots that are performing incredible functions that sustain us. And we'll have some video that looks at those things as well. Again, that level of complexity was clearly not under understood at the time of Darwin. Uh, for, for over 2,000 years, people believed that life was simple. And again, that it was continuously emerging. That was a scientific view that was held for so long that was, was later disproved. And it does show how you can hold, have an idea in science that is held by the majority of people for a very long time before it's finally disproved. So Darwin's Black Box, in a landmark book written by Michael Behe, and he's a biochemist, a professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. He published a book in the late 1900s and he introduced this concept of irreducible complexity. And he said this is a challenge to the neo-Darwinian theory. And when you see neo-Darwinian, what that means, you had the original Darwinism, and Darwin did not understand things like genetics. And with Gregor Mendel coming along and beginning to help us to understand how genetics work, they had to with a new theory. And it was neo-Darwinism combining the work of Mendel with the, the work of Darwin. So that's neo-Darwinism, sometimes called the modern synthesis. So he says, by irreducible complexity, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function. 
wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. And he gives an illustration. I think most everybody here is familiar with the mousetrap. So the mousetrap consists of five components, and you see them there, the slammer, spring, holding bar, platform, and catch. If you take away any one part, the mousetrap doesn't function. So you have to have it all. It's a complex system. It's irreducibly complex, okay? Well, what you're going to see is life is built of irreducibly complex systems. And again, the Darwin model was any system that exists is, has to have been constructed by incremental small steps all along the way with every step along the way having function. That's an advantage over what existed before. Here's an example of a molecular machine found in single-celled organisms. This is the bacterial flagellum. <clears throat> what, what do we know about this today? It has over 40 essential parts. It includes a bushing, a stator, a rotor, a drive shaft, a universal joint, a propeller. The flagellum is a rotary motor used to propel a bacterium in liquid. It spins at 17,000 and sometimes up to 100,000 revolutions per minute. The motor is acid-driven, it's liquid-cooled, and it's self-replicating. Now, this is a single-celled organism. This is what they call a simple cell. This is only one tiny part of the entire cell, of what they call a simple cell. Okay? And you can't even see these with your eye. You have to have a microscope to even see these. So in the video, we're going to learn more about the mousetrap and the flagellum and the concepts. So here we go. This, will run, this one will run actually about 15 minutes. Natural selection acts only by taking advantage of slight successive variations. She can never take a great and sudden leap, but must advance by short and sure, though slow steps. It's really interesting to notice that the more we know about life and the more we know about biology, the more problems Darwinism has and the more design becomes apparent. Since 1988, Dr. Michael B. has investigated complex biological systems that seem to defy explanation by natural selection. For the longest time, I believe that Darwinian evolution explains what we saw in biology. Not because I saw how it could actually explain it, but because I was told that it did explain it. And in schools, I was taught Darwinian biology. And through college and graduate school, I was in an atmosphere which just assumed that Darwinian evolution explained biology. And again, I didn't have any reason to doubt it. It wasn't until about no, ten years or more ago that I read a book called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis by a, a geneticist by the na name of Michael Denton, an Australian. And he put forward a lot of scientific arguments against Darwinian theory that I had never heard before. And, and the arguments uh, seemed pretty convincing. And at that point I, I started to get a bit angry 
because I, I thought I was being led down the primrose path. Here were a number of very good arguments, and I had gone through a, a doctoral program in biochemistry, became a faculty member, and uh, I had never even heard of these things. And so from that point on, I became very interested in, in the question of evolution and, and uh, since have decided the Darwinian uh, processes are not uh, the whole explanation for life. Michael Behe's skepticism derived in large measure from what modern biology has revealed about life's most fundamental unit, the cell. In the 19th century, when Darwin was alive, scientists thought that the basis of life, the cell, was some simple glob of protoplasm, like a little piece of jello or something that was not hard to explain at all. This perception didn't really change too much until the early 1950s. But in the last half century, our knowledge of the cell has just exploded. Today, powerful technologies reveal elaborate microscopic worlds. Worlds so small that a thimbleful of cultured liquid can contain more than four billion single-cell bacteria, each packed with circuits, assembly instructions, and miniature machines, the complexity of which Charles Darwin could never have imagined. At the very basis of life, where molecules and cells run the show, we've discovered machines, literally molecular machines. There are little molecular trucks that carry supplies from one end of the cell to the other. There are machines which capture the energy from sunlight and turn it into usable energy. There are as many molecular machines in the human body as there are functions that the body has to do. So if you think about hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, blood clotting, respiratory action, the immune response, all of those require a host of machines. When we look at these machines, we ask ourselves, where do they come from? And the standard answer, Darwinian evolution, uh, is very inadequate in my view. In speaking on the topic of scientific naturalism and evolution... During the early 1990s, at a series of academic conferences, Behe first shared his doubts about the ability of natural selection to construct complex molecular machines. One machine particularly attracted his attention. I remember the first time I, I looked in a biochemistry textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts and all of its glory. It's had a propeller and the hook region and the, the drive shaft and the motor and, and so on. I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That, that's designed, you know, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. Behe's reaction was not surprising. For the molecular motors that drive bacteria through liquid, each depend upon a system of intricately arranged mechanical parts. These parts come into focus when portions of a cell are magnified 50,000 times. Biochemists have used electron micrographs like this one to identify the parts and three-dimensional structure of the flagellar motor. In the process, they have revealed a marvel of engineering on a miniaturized scale. Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. 
These machines, some of them are running at 100,000 RPMs and are hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback from the environment. And even though they're spinning that fast, they can stop on a dime. It only takes a quarter turn for them to stop and shift directions and start spinning 100,000 RPM in the other direction. And just like outboard motors on motorboats, it has a large number of parts which are necessary for the motor to work. The bacterial flagellum, two gears, forward and reverse, water-cooled, proton motive force, it has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller, and they function um, as these parts of machines. It's, you know, it's not convenient that we give them these names. That's truly their function. Since its discovery, scientists have tried to understand how a rotary motor could have arisen through natural selection. As yet, they have failed to offer any detailed Darwinian explanation. To see why, we must understand a feature of molecular machines known as irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity was coined by Mike Behe in describing these molecular machines. Basically what it says is that you have multi-component parts to any given organelle or system in a cell, all of which are necessary for function. That is, if you remove one part, you lose function of that system. The idea of irreducible complexity can be illustrated by a familiar non-biological machine, a mousetrap. The trap is composed of five basic pieces. A catch to hold the bait. A strong spring. A thin bent rod called the hammer. A holding bar to secure the hammer in place. And a platform upon which the entire system is mounted. If any one of these parts is missing or defective, the mechanism will not work. All components of this irreducibly complex system must be present simultaneously for the machine to perform its function, catching mice. Irreducible complexity also applies to biological machines, including the bacterial flagellar motor. All told, there are about 40 different protein parts which are necessary for this machine to work. And if any of those parts are missing, uh, then either you get a flagellum that doesn't work because it's missing the hook or it's missing the drive shaft or whatever, or it doesn't even get built within the cell. In evolutionary terms, you have to be able to explain how you can build this system gradually when there's no function until you have all those parts in place. The irreducible complexity of molecular machines poses a severe challenge to the power of natural selection. According to Darwin's theory, even very complex biological structures like an eye, an ear, or a heart can be built gradually over time in small incremental steps. Yet, as Darwin made clear, natural selection can only succeed if these random genetic changes provide some advantage to the evolving organism in its struggle for survival. As I have attempted to show, 
It is not necessary to suppose that the modifications were all simultaneous if they were extremely slight and gradual. Natural selection is scrutinizing the slightest variations, rejecting those that are bad, preserving and adding up all that are good. But could Darwin's small, favorable variations have produced a bacterial flagellum? Some scientists doubt the possibility. How could something new, like a bacteria flagellar motor and all the components that go with it, how could it develop out of a population of bacteria that don't have that system? When each change, according to Darwin's theory, has to provide some kind of advantage. Imagine such a scenario early in the Earth's history. An evolving bacterium somehow develops a tail and perhaps even the pieces necessary to attach it to the cell wall. Yet without a complete motor assembly, this innovation would provide no advantage to the cell. Instead, the tail would lie immobile and useless, invisible to natural selection, which by definition can only favor changes that aid survival. The logic of natural selection is very demanding. Unless the flagellum mechanism is completely assembled and actually works, natural selection simply cannot preserve it. It cannot be passed on to the next generation. The important thing to realize about natural selection is it selects only for a functional advantage. In most cases, natural selection actually eliminates things, things that have no function or that have a function that harms the organism. So if you had a bacterium with a tail that didn't function as a flagellum, chances are natural selection would eliminate it. The only way you can select for a flagellum is if you have a flagellum that works, and that means you have to have all the pieces of the motor in place to begin with. So natural selection can't get you the bacterial flagellum. It can only work after the flagellum is there and operating. In 1996, Michael Behe published a book titled Darwin's Black Box. In it, he argued that natural selection, Darwin's designer substitute, could not explain the origin of the bacterial flagellum or any other irreducibly complex biological system. Instead, Behe concluded that the integrated complexity of these systems pointed to intelligent design. Darwin's black box created immediate controversy. Over 75 publications, including some of the world's leading newspapers and scientific journals, reviewed the book. Some scientists praised Behe's work, while others dismissed it as unscientific and religiously motivated. Behe's critics also insisted that he had underestimated the power of natural selection. They argued that the flagellar motor could have been constructed from parts used to build simpler molecular machines like this needle-nose cellular pump. If the components of the pump already existed, they could have been preserved by natural selection even before the bacterial motor arose. This theory is called co-option. It's essentially saying that evolution or natural selection at some point was able to borrow components of one molecular machine and build a new machine with some of these components. Scott Minnick has studied the flagellar motor for nearly 20 years. His research has led him to challenge the co-option argument. 
with a bacterial flagellum. You're talking about a machine that's got 40 structural parts. Yes, we find 10 of them are involved in another molecular machine, but the other 30 are unique. So where are you going to borrow them from? Eventually, you're going to have to account for the function of every single part is originally having some other purpose. So you can only follow that argument so far until you run into the problem of you're borrowing parts from nothing. But even if you concede that you have all the parts necessary to build one of these machines, that's only part of the problem. Maybe even more complex, I think more complex, is the assembly instructions. That is never addressed by opponents of the irreducible complexity argument. Studies of the bacterial motor have indeed revealed an even deeper level of complexity. For its construction not only requires specific parts, but also a precise sequence of assembly. You've got to make things at the right time. You've got to make the right number of components. You've got to assemble them in a sequential manner. You've got to be able to tell if you've assembled it properly so that you don't waste energy building a structure that's not going to be functional. Building a molecular machine has been compared to the construction of a house where workers follow a detailed blueprint and plan for assembly. The foundation of a house is poured before the walls are erected. Plumbing and electrical fixtures are installed prior to enclosing the walls of the structure. Windows must be hung before siding is applied, and shingles are attached only after plywood sheets are nailed to the rafters. So it is with the construction of a flagellar motor. You build this structure from the inside out. You are counting the number of, of components in a ring structure or the stator. And once that's assembled, there's feedback that says, okay, no more of that component now. A rod is added. A ring is added. Another rod is added. U-joints added. Once U-joints at a certain size, and a certain degree of, of bend, about a quarter turn, that's shut off, and then you start adding components for the propeller. These are all made in a precise sequence, just like you would build a building. To build a motor correctly requires a complex system of machines that coordinate the timing of the assembly instructions. But how could natural selection construct such a system? The co-option argument doesn't explain this. You see, in order to construct that flagellar mechanism or tens of thousands of other such mechanisms in the cell, you require other machines to regulate the assembly of these structures. And those machines themselves require machines for their assembly. If even one of these pieces is missing or put in the wrong place, your motor isn't going to work. So this apparatus to assemble the flagellar motor is itself irreducibly complex. In fact, what we have here is irreducible complexity all the way down. We know a lot about the bacterial flagellum. We still have a lot to learn, but we know a lot about it. And uh, there's no explanation for how this complex molecular machine was ever produced by a Darwinian mechanism. 150 years ago, scientists did not know about irreducibly complex molecular machines. Yet Charles Darwin anticipated the difficulty that systems such as these could pose to his theory. 
If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Freezing. So uh, I think it has to do with our Wi-Fi transfer. Uh, so this video, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, is available on YouTube. So if you want to see the full one-hour production, again, it's Unlocking the Mystery of Life. Uh, but I think that does a really good job of explaining the concept of irreducible complexity. Living organisms actually have thousands of irreducibly complex systems. And again, I think it's quite difficult for the Darwinian explanation to account for all of these very complex systems. Uh, the ear with all of its 20 plus parts, the brain, which is extraordinarily complex. But actually you can go down further, like I said, to the molecular machine level. This is a diagram of ATP and we're gonna be watching some video here real quick that shows that hopefully it'll come through well. ATP, Synthase is the device here that actually takes ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and adds a phosphate to it to make it adenosine triphosphate. And that's the battery that operates in every single cell in your body, not just your body, but all living organisms. So whether you're talking about a human or a palm tree or even the bacterial like the, that you saw earlier, all of these operate using ATP as their battery packs. Well, the normal mode of production is this kind of a machine that you'll see here, and we'll, we'll watch it. Hopefully this plays well. Synthase is a high-tech micromolecular power generator inside the cells of your body. It generates adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, an energy molecule that provides fuel that every one of your cells needs to function. Without this fuel, your cells will cease operation, and so will you. ATP synthase works like a rotary engine, the barrel-shaped rotator is composed of 10 to 15 protein parts called subunits. The rotator spins around, transmitting mechanical energy into the drive shaft of the machine, which helps make ATP. This drive shaft has a specially placed bump that opens and closes parts as the drive shaft spins around. This bump opens special protein subunits on the bottom of the machine.
When the bottom subunits open, a spent energy molecule called adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, enters the machine. The mechanical motion causes the ADP to bind with an additional phosphate group, creating the ATP energy molecule. And the ATP drifts off into the cell, ready to power some biomechanical reaction. The ATP synthase machine has many parts we recognize from human-designed technology. A rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, and other basic components of a rotary engine. The ATP synthase is one of thousands of elegantly designed molecular machines inside your cells that make your life and all known life possible. ATP synthase. An example of intelligent design. YouTube and put in molecular machines, you can bring up a lot of videos like these because this is an area there's been a lot of learning in just recent years. Uh, a few things about the ATP. Like I said, it's in every cell. It's the battery pack of every cell. Um, each ADP, ATP gets recycled about 1,000 to 1,500 times a day, and your body in the course of a day produces basically your body weight of ATP. So if you weigh 150 pounds, your body's producing 150 pounds of ATP every day. And I think what's quite remarkable, how, how often is this actually happening in terms of an ADP going into one of these rotary motors and converting to ATP? The estimate is 10 to the 20th power per second in your body. That's, that's a really big number. So you have somewhere between 50 trillion and 100 trillion cells in your body. And there are so many of these. Again, your, your whole, every one of your cells is driven by ATP. So 10 to the 20th power per second is how many of these are being generated in your body. Now, we've got a couple more videos, and hopefully they will play, okay, uh, to see some other. We're going to learn now about kinesin, another molecular machine. full of specialized components that perform functions vital to their existence. But how do these components get to the right locations inside the cell to perform their functions? For larger components, a transportation system is needed. Meet the kinesin. Masterpieces of microengineering, kinesins are miniature motorized machines that carry cargo from one part of the cell to another walking along self-assembling highways, called microtubules. Known as the workhorses of the cell, kinesins have two feet, or globular heads, that literally walk one foot over another along the microtubule, pulling their cargo to its destination. Each foot possesses two special locations, called binding sites, that interact with other molecules. One site attaches to the microtubule, and the other binds with ATP, the energy molecule of the cell. When one foot binds with ATP and uses its energy, 
the foot flips over, resulting in the walking motion. Each foot has a short neck, which is connected to a strand of a long coiled stalk. At the end of the stalk is a fan-shaped tail, which holds tightly to the cargo being transported. Kinesins can carry cargo that are many times their own size. Sometimes a kinesin is in danger of getting stuck on the microtubule highway because of blockages caused by other cellular components. To get around such obstacles, multiple motor proteins may be used to carry a single piece of cargo, together providing enough force to break free. Kinesins typically walk away from the center of the cell and toward the cell's periphery. The kinesins' two feet work together efficiently, with one foot holding fast to the microtubule, while the other releases itself and takes a step forward. This coordinated stepwise movement allows kinesin motors to walk as many as 100 steps per second, moving about 8 nanometers with each step. When not carrying cargo, kinesins can shift to energy-saving mode to conserve fuel until their next job. The kinesin plays a vital role in many cellular processes, not just transporting materials, but also aiding cell replication. The walking kinesin molecular machine, another example of intelligent design. We have one more video that we're going to look at. So here we've been looking at individual molecular machines, the ATP synthase. And as you showed there, every step that the kinesin takes requires one ATP to energize it, to allow it to move forward. Okay, so we saw the kinesin and the ATP, but these molecular machines actually are working together. There are thousands of these machines in your cells. So we're going to look at this video that deals with cell division. Hopefully. These are tiny molecular machines, and they are doing this inside your body right now. To understand why, we have to zoom out. Every day in an adult human body, 50 to 70 billion of your cells die. Either they're stressed or damaged or just old. But this is normal. In fact, it's called programmed cell death. But to make up for all these lost cells, right now, billions of your cells are dividing, essentially creating new cells. And that process of cell division, also called mitosis, well, it requires an army of tiny molecular machines. So let's take a closer look. DNA is a good place to start, the double helix molecule we always talk about. This is a scientifically accurate depiction of DNA created by Drew Barry at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. If you unwind the two strands, you can see that each has a sugar phosphate backbone connected to the sequence of nucleic acid base pairs, known by the letters A, T, G, and C. Now the strands run in opposite directions, which is important when you go to copy DNA. Copying DNA is one of the first steps in cell division. Here the two strands of DNA are being unwound and separated by the tiny blue molecular machine called helicase. Helicase literally spins as fast as a jet engine. <laughs> the strand of DNA on the right has its complementary strand assembled continuously, but the other strand is more complicated because it runs in the opposite direction. So it must be looped out with its complementary strand assembled in reverse, section by section, 
At the end of this process, you have two identical DNA molecules, each one a few centimeters long, but just a couple nanometers wide. So to prevent the DNA from becoming a tangled mess, it is wrapped around proteins called histones, forming a nucleosome. These nucleosomes are bundled together into a fiber known as chromatin, which is further looped and coiled to form a chromosome, one of the largest molecular structures in your body. You can actually see chromosomes under a microscope in dividing cells. Only then do they take on their characteristic shape. Otherwise, the DNA is more strewn inside the nucleus. The process of dividing a cell takes around an hour in mammals. So this footage is from a time lapse. You can see how the chromosomes line up on the equator of the cell. Now when everything is right, they are pulled apart into the two new daughter cells, each one containing an identical copy of DNA. Now as simple as this looks, the process is incredibly complicated and requires even more fascinating molecular machines to accomplish it. So let's look at a single chromosome. One chromosome consists of two sausage-shaped chromatids containing the identical copies of DNA made earlier. Each chromatid is attached to microtubule fibers, which guide and help align them in the correct position. The microtubules are connected to the chromatid at the kinetochore, here colored red. The kinetochore consists of hundreds of different proteins working together to achieve multiple objectives. In fact, it's one of the most sophisticated molecular mechanisms inside your body. The kinetochore is central to the successful separation of the chromatids. It creates a dynamic connection between the chromosome and the microtubules. For a reason no one's yet been able to figure out, the microtubules are constantly being built at one end and deconstructed at the other. While the chromosome is still getting ready, the kinetochore sends out a chemical stop signal to the rest of the cell, shown here by the red molecules, basically saying this chromosome is not yet ready to divide. The kinetochore also mechanically senses tension. When the tension is just right and the position and attachment are correct, all the proteins get ready, shown here by turning green. At this point, the stop signal broadcasting system is not switched off. Instead, it is literally carried away from the kinetochore down the microtubules by a dynene motor. That's the walking guy. This is really what it looks like. It has long legs so it can avoid obstacles and step over the kinesins, molecular motors that walk in the opposite direction. Personally, I'm astounded by these tiny molecular machines, how they're able to routinely and faithfully execute their functions billions of times over inside your body at this exact instant. I'm also amazed by the scientists who were able to work out how this happens in such detail that we could create realistic depictions of them like you saw in the animations in this video. But perhaps the most amazing thing is just how much is left to be discovered, like figuring out how exactly the chromatids are pulled to opposite ends of the cell. There is still so much that we don't quite know. You know, what I find exciting is that in science fiction, for decades we've been writing about tiny nanobots that will be injected into our bloodstreams that can heal us. But what this suggests, the existence of these tiny molecular machines inside us, it suggests 
that there isn't a physical limit that would prevent that. And so I think it's pretty likely that in future we will be able to develop our own tiny molecular machines that will be able to repair our bodies better than they can repair themselves. Again, these videos are on YouTube, so if you uh, want to look them up and see them that don't freeze, uh, they're available. But again, this highlights the level of sophistication as we're learning how cells operate. So your cells have thousands of molecular machines in them, and those machines are built by other machines, okay? When I showed the video earlier, the longer video, and it showed the construction of the flagellum, and it illustrated the construction of a house. The DNA not only contains the code for making the components, and that's what scientists were focused on for a long time, that is, what part of DNA codes to make a protein. And that's somewhat like you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's, and you can buy the components of a house. You can buy the two-by-fours, two-by-sixes. You can buy the concrete bags. You, know, you can buy the electrical wire. You can get all the components and have them delivered to your lot, but you don't have a house, right? It obviously has to all be put together. DNA has not only the information for the components, it has all the assembly instructions for how to put things together step-by-step step, and then how to repair it if it's broken. And then the amazing thing about DNA, of course, cells can duplicate themselves so they can completely make a copy of themselves. So these things go far beyond any capability that we have at this point. Um, JBS Haldane was also um, an evolutionary uh, mathematician, and he was involved in developing the neo-Darwinian uh, views. He also gave what he considered to be falsification tests for the Darwinian theory. And he said that um, various mechanisms such as the wheel and the magnet, which could, would be useless till fairly perfect, couldn't happen through Darwinian mechanisms. Any such machines and organisms would, in his opinion, prove evolution false. Molecular motors have fulfilled one of Haldane's criteria and turtles and monarch butterflies, which use magnetic sensors for navigation, have fulfilled his other criteria. So again, he said, if these things were true, Darwinism would be false. Well, we now know that those things that he thought of have all been validated as present. Consider the eye. So this, again, is something Charles Darwin wrote. To suppose that the eye, with all of its inimitable, and that's matchless, contrivance for adjusting the focus to different distances, for emitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd to the highest degree. So again, it just shows a prior commitment to materialism and to naturalism leads you to look at the evidence differently. Now the eye, just a few facts on it. Um, in, in recent years, the 4K TV was developed, a new innovation. A 4K TV has 8 million pixels. Well, now you can actually purchase an 8K TV, which has 33 million pixels. Your eye has over 130 million light-sensitive cells in it. 
okay? Each eye has over 130 million light-sensitive cells. But there's a complexity that goes with that um, that, again, Charles Darwin could never have thought of, and that is the chemistry of the eye. Okay, it's one thing to look at the large components, and you can see, you know, the things you're familiar with, the retina and the cornea, the lens, and all of these things that could have been visible in Charles Darwin's day, but we now are beginning to understand the actual chemistry. And so I had a, another slide on this that I'm not going to go into, but just to briefly touch on, you have in each of your light-sensitive cells this compound called 11-cis-retinol. It's a chemical compound, and it has this particular shape. When a single photon of light strikes this 11-cis-retinol, it changes its shape. It goes from a bent shape to a straightened shape. And this chemical is bound to a protein called rhodopsin. When that happens, a series of chemical reactions are set into motion. And over a set of chemical reactions, you eventually have an electronic signal that's sent from your eye to your brain. And it's in your brain where your brain interprets all of that in order to give you vision. You're not actually seeing with your eye. You're seeing with your brain. But it's receiving the information from the eye, and it converts that into vision. Okay, so you've got irreducible complexity at the chemical level as well as at a physical level, at a larger physical level. Okay, so that's just what I wanted to point out there. Psalm 94, think again, you fools, when, you, when will you finally catch on? Is he deaf, the one who made your ears? Is he blind, the one who formed your eyes? He knows everything. Doesn't he also know what you are doing? That's a good reminder. The one who made those eyes with 130 plus million light sensitive cells, he knows what you're seeing with your eyes. So let's use our eyes wisely. So the second topic, which we'll go through a little quicker now, is abiogenesis, which is also chemical evolution or spontaneous generation. Uh, this particular quote from H.P. Yockley, he says, research on the origin of life seems to be unique in that the conclusion has already been authoritatively accepted. What remains to be done is to find the scenarios which describe the detailed mechanisms and processes by which this happened. One must conclude that contrary to the established and current wisdom, a scenario describing the genesis of life on earth by chance and natural causes, which can be accepted on the basis of fact and not faith, has not yet been written. So he's saying, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, you have to have life, okay? Life has to emerge from inorganic chemicals. And then Darwinian mechanisms can act on that life. And the concept there is one single cell eventually over eons of time becomes all living organisms on the face of the earth. And the point he's making is that transition from inorganic chemicals to a living cell, no one has ever come up with a viable scenario for that to have happened. Now, lots of people have looked at it I think most every one of you, when you were in school, learned about the Miller-Urey experiment. 
And this was an attempt back in the 1950s where they tried to create an apparatus, a chemical apparatus that could generate amino acids. And they started by putting together a reducing atmosphere of methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen, and they sparked it. They ran it for a while and got nothing. So they kept adjusting their conditions and eventually ran hundreds of experiments attempting to get amino acids. And they did finally generate trace amounts of certain amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. And so this was hailed as showing how life might have emerged. Well, again, three, three major problems were identified for this particular set of experiments. First off, it had the wrong starting materials. What we now know, I mean, no matter how deep you go in digging through the ores or of the strata of the earth, there's always oxygenated rock. And if you look at what comes out of volcanoes, you always have a large amount of carbon dioxide is emitted from volcanoes. And so people now understand that the earth has always had oxygen in some form present in its atmosphere. If you had carbon dioxide in this experiment, it would not have worked. Well, also, the spark, which was the energy source, did lead to the development of a few amino acids, but the spark destroys the amino acids as fast as it makes it. So what they had to do was physically separate those compounds from the spark, and so they put together a, a chemical trap to quickly extract whatever compounds were made and isolate them from the spark. Well, that's fairly un unreal as a scenario. But then ultimately they got the wrong results. Most of what they made were toxic tars. They made a few of the amino acids of life but were missing the more complex amino acids of life. They also generated amino acids that are not a part of living organisms. There's 20 amino acids that go into living things. They were making amino acids that are different than those 20. And then you probably remember uh, chemicals often come in what are called racemic mixtures, and these are described as like our hands. So we have hands and a left-handed and a right-handed. Each hand has four fingers and a thumb, but obviously they're oriented in opposite directions, right? Life is made up of left-handed amino acids, he made a racemic mixture, which means like a 50-50 mixture, which is typically what happens. It actually takes a lot of sophistication in order to only produce like an L only. A mixture of L and R would cause life not to be possible. Proteins would not form. And that's what they made. And of course, they did not make any proteins. You can have amino acids. That's a long ways from having actual life. Like say, go buy a can of green beans at the local store. You have all the components of life present. You've got the amino acids. You've got even proteins. You've got all the other components, but it's not alive, right? So the fact that they made a few amino acids in trace quantities is far and away from actually doing anything that would show how life could be generated. And nowadays, the people that try to think about how these things might have happened. They've given up largely on anything happening in the atmosphere whatsoever. They're now thinking about maybe thermal vents under the oceans. But again, no experiments have been run that show that even that's possible. And it's very difficult to form a protein in a water environment because water will break it down if you don't have other special compounds present to keep that from happening. 
So I just wanted to bring this up because you've been exposed to it. It's largely been rejected. Now, the law of biogenesis, this law of science, states that living organisms only come from other living organisms. They do not spontaneously arise from non-living matter. And you learned about the experimentation of Louis Pasteur. His experiments basically demonstrated that life only comes from pre-existing life. And so to believe in Darwinian evolution, you have to believe in spontaneous generation, which actually is in direct violation to a known law of science. What Darwin didn't know, again, he assumed that life was simple. And as you saw in the videos, we now understand that life is extraordinarily complex. Every cell is a highly sophisticated system of many biological machines working together in unison. So a better illustration, again, of a cell is a city. So if you think about what's present in Sarasota for it to work, you've got highways, right? You've got factories. You've got places where food can be produced. You've got waste disposal. You've got the library where the information is stored. You've got the police force. You've got all of the components. That's a better illustration of what we now understand to be a cell. A cell is not simple. It's highly complex. People have tried to do the math to understand how these things could have come about. And so the, at the more basic level, they look at if you have amino acids, and again, there's 20 that make up life. We'll look at those actually next week briefly. They're put together in a polymer, and they're in a, a way that they would not naturally link up. They're, they're forced into forming a polymer in a non-natural sequence. So people have started to look at how could the first proteins have formed. And when they've looked at the math, again, the theory of evolution holds that the Earth formed four and a half billion years ago by natural processes. Over a long period of time, chemicals bonded together to eventually form proteins and, again, a living cell. In an attempt to answer the question, chemical scientists and adventurers Dr. Bradley and Thaxton calculated the probability of amino acids naturally forming into a protein as 4.9 times 10 to the negative 191. Now, that's a number that's hard to get your mind around. It's estimated that the number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 80. So the probability of these amino acids linking up in a non-natural sequence to make a protein is worse than picking out one atom from the universe. Okay, that was their math. Sir Fred Hoyle compared the probability of the formation of just one of the many proteins on which life depends as comparable to that of the solar system packed full of blind people randomly shuffling Rubik's cubes and all arriving at the solution at the same time. Yet a hypothetical simple cell would have at least 400 unique proteins, and in reality, a simple cell, those that we know about, have at least 2,000 proteins. And D.A. Bradbury calculated the probability of the formation not of a protein, but of all of the proteins that would be necessary to be present in a simple cell at 1 in 10 to the 57,800th power. Again, 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. And just one example of kind of the chicken and the egg issue. DNA 
is a long, sticky, fragile molecule. And here's just another bit of factoid. So you've got 50 to 100 trillion cells in your body. And with the exception of your red blood cells, all of your cells have DNA. So imagine 100 trillion cells. DNA is actually, in your cell, about six feet long. Six feet long. If you took all the DNA from your body and lined it up in a, in a row, it would be twice the diameter of the solar system. It would be going from here to the moon 150,000 times or going from here to the sun about 400 to 500 times. That's how much DNA is in all of the cells in your body. Okay, so, but DNA, because it is so fragile, it has to be protected. And so DNA is wrapped in proteins called histones. Okay, without those, can you, you've, you've worked with electrical cords or with uh, water hoses, and you know how easy it is to get them tangled? Well, imagine something that's only like two nanometers wide and it's six feet long, and you're packing it into a space of a cell in the nucleus that's so small you can't even see it with your eye. And so it has to be wrapped in histones to keep it from getting tangled up. Well, the DNA contains the information for making histones, and you have to have histones in order to protect the DNA. So which comes first? And, and that's the way much of life is. And as a matter of fact, to make histones, you need about 75 other proteins as well as other components like ATP in order to generate histones. So there are these kinds of complexities that are present, irreducibly complex kind of systems that remain a major challenge. So as we wrap up, Romans 1 again says, For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and all that God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Now, there are many scientists, including some that you saw in the video here, who I think had an open mind. They were trained in Darwinian evolution. But as they began to really understand the intricacies of the cell and things like irreducible complexity, they say that the evidence clearly points to an intelligent source that has to be behind it all. Now, other people will look at that evidence and simply reject it out of hand because they have a prior commitment to materialism. So this wonderful thing that we call life a few scriptures on this. The Lord God formed the man, Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Life comes from God himself. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Peter speaking to the Jews on Pentecost said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So life is from God. He is the source of life. And I think, again, looking at the science and studying the science and the complexity of it, we can 
again, give glory to God as the source of life. And you may want to go home and read Psalm 139 again, which talks about how God intricately built and designed you with your 100 trillion cells and all those molecular machines and all of the DNA that's present in you. Okay? So when we come back together in our next session, we'll be looking at DNA and some of the, the recent learnings that we have about the complexity of the DNA and, and things related to that. So I'm going to close with a prayer for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we just want to say thank you. We recognize that you are the author of life, and we just give you the praise and the glory that we are alive because you willed us to be alive. And Lord, we have not only natural life that we've inherited from Adam, which came from you, but we have spiritual life that came from the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And it's through the last Adam that we have salvation and adoption. And Father, someday you tell us that you will raise us from the dead and give us new bodies that'll be far even better than what we've been learning about tonight. Something far greater that will never die, that will not experience pain and suffering. And we just thank you for that. And Father, for just how wonderful you are. And we ask that you would watch over us as we go from this place and help us to continue just to meditate, Lord, on your wonders and how great and awesome you are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.